Um, thank you. Uh, although Pastor Al has never preached here at Emmaus, he is definitely not a stranger to our community. Um, he's been preaching God's word here in Lincoln uh, and serving our wider community in a number of different ways, including being the, the football coach for our, our high school. Um, yeah, and so um, thank you for coming and sharing uh, worship with us this morning. We appreciate it so much. And uh, it's all yours. Thank you. God bless well, you. Thank you. Well, I'm going to... Can I grab this? Is it okay to use this? Yeah. All right. I promise I'm not stealing it. Hey, it is great to be here with you, and uh, you've got such a great church community. Let me just take a minute and just simply say this, because I want to talk about your pastor a little bit. In 2008, I got a chance to meet Pastor Nathan when he was uh, involved in coaching at the school and really just have a high regard for him. And uh, you've got a great team here, and it's evident that he's done a great job to build team and uh, that the fact that you would release and allow your pastor to have some vacation time and get some rest is just really... And I, I just noticed that. You know, it's one thing for a pastor to go on vacation. It's another thing when you're hearing his staff go, man, we're just so glad he can get some rest and connect. And I'm going, that's awesome. That is really awesome, and they're really, they, they're behind this. And so you've done a great job in loving your pastor, but you have a great pastor to love, and I just uh, consider it an honor to be here with you. Before I get started, why don't you turn to the person next to you and just say, he's not going to be talking about you this morning. Go ahead. <laughs> so funny, I watch a few faces, and they go, he better not talk about me. Oh, if you need a Bible, I guess they hand out Bibles here. This is great. And don't cost anything. They're free. That's awesome. Hey, I'm going I'm to uh, get started here. You're in a series, Jesus Says, and today we're going to talk about um, one of the sayings that Jesus says out of the Beatitudes, and we're going to talk about what it means to be human. Um, I don't know if you know this, but regardless of where you're at on your journey, we all have stuff. We all have stuff. People deal with stuff. Um, matter of fact, I came across a guide of what different religions, how they interpret stuff. Let me, let me share it with you. Taoism, stuff happens. <laughs> Buddhism, if stuff happens, it isn't really stuff. Hinduism, this stuff has happened before. Islam, if stuff happens, it's the will of Allah. Catholicism, if stuff happens, you deserve it. Protestantism, let stuff happen to someone else. <laughs> Presbyterian, this stuff was bound to happen. Episcopalian, it's not so bad if stuff happens as long as you serve the right wine with it. <laughs> I like that, that's funny. Lutheran, if stuff happens, don't talk about it. Fundamentalism, if stuff happens, you'll go to hell unless you're not born again, amen. Judaism, why does this stuff always happen to us? Calvinism, stuff happens because you don't work. Seventh-day Adventism, no stuff shall happen on Saturday. <laughs> Christian science, stuff happens, but it's all in your mind. <laughs> Jehovah Witnesses, knock, knock, stuff happens. <laughs> Evangelical Christians, if you work harder, stuff will not happen. Baptist, stuff can only happen when we vote on it. 
Rastafarianism, let's smoke this stuff. <laughs> We've all got stuff, regardless of how you want to define it. We've all got stuff. And let me give you several assumptions just right off the bat that I have concerning maturity, growth, and what it means to find our freedom in Christ. First, it doesn't matter what stage you are on your journey with Jesus, God is always trying to increase our capacity to receive the truth. He's always trying to increase our capacity. And so increasing our capacity, when we talk about the journey that we're on, we're always talking about Christ increasing our hearts and our capacity to not only receive the truth, but to have that truth set us free. Second, what shapes how and what we think will determine how we live. And so God is all about working with our thinking and, and shaping us so that whatever was inside of us, we can live out publicly. And here's the third assumption that I have. We can only be transformed in the context of community. Only in the context, you know, in America, we have such an individualistic perspective of spirituality. You know, it's that John Way, just it's, you know, the unholy trinity, me, myself, and I. That's all I need. I just need me. But here's the truth of the matter, ladies and gentlemen. For us to really come to the place of being mature in Christ, we need each other. But maybe not for the reasons that you thought to. I'll guarantee you something. Regardless of the demographic that's here today and the fact that in a few more moments when we have our breakout time, which I think is a great idea of what you do when people go and destroy the donut population over there and we connect. Here's the thing. Not all of us may even like each other. There are some personalities here, and I don't know why it is, but you find them in church. The person that you come across, they, they come into church and all of a sudden, they just bug you, and you bug them. Because that's the reason why the church is almost like dancing with porcupines sometimes. But here's the beauty of it. Usually it's in the context of that kind of community that I change. You know, I don't, it's like marriage. It really is. You know, early on in my marriage, I'd say, honey, things would be just so much better if you would change. And she would look at me and go, you really believe this? I go, yeah, yeah, I do. But the fact of the matter is, I needed to change. And so community does that. So when we look at the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. We're looking at this verse from the context that Jesus is talking about it with Jews who understood the kingdom of God. They understood community. He's in the horns of Hatton, this amazing place between two hills in which literally it's like, a, it's like an amplifier. The words of Jesus is being carried to 15,000 people, thereabouts they estimate, who are hearing this message that Jesus is giving. And they understand this very, very well, though the application is so different that Jesus is giving. So you might be asking, what do I need freedom from? Well, here's several questions I have. Do you overwork? Do you overeat? Do you overspend? Do you have fear? Do you have anxiety? Do you deal with abuse? Maybe hypochondria. Do you have relationships that are just way out of control that you just can't seem to fix? Maybe on your journey, there's addictions that maybe some people don't even know about. Maybe there's issues of insecurity. 
Maybe there's issues where you just don't seem to be able to connect with people. The list can go on and on and on and on and on. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the verse that Jesus uses when on the journey we understand it, we can ultimately find freedom. Here's what Jesus wants us to experience from this verse. Profound favor that accompanies the radical transformation of those living under his control who come to the place of stop playing God. When we stop playing God. So here's, here's the context and the setting. I love it. Mark records that, that Jesus' whole message was the kingdom of God that he was preaching and teaching the kingdom. And this kingdom, every Jew understood it, was the rule and reign of God on planet Earth. It was that time in which God was going to establish his authority. He's not talking about an ethnic kingdom that's ethnocentric because of the, uh, Israel alone. It's a global reality, though they don't understand that. And Jesus has been preaching this message. He's in the second year of his ministry. And, and people are getting healed of sickness. And great multitudes are, are coming and flocking. And here he comes to Galilee. And he's beginning to preach this, this message. And he's going to give the core values of the kingdom of God. And, and, the, and, and there's three things about these core values that are really important. First, it reflects the central theme of what God wanted for his people that he was coming to build a nation of people who would have equal access to God. People who would, who would be chosen. They were going to be a nation in themselves. They were going to live by a, an invisible kingdom made visible because of the love that they had for one another. Then the second one is a proper attitude of kingdom citizens. Now, I don't know if you get this, but if you read the Beatitudes, it's so counterintuitive to our nature. Bless those who curse you. If someone slaps you, turn the other cheek. If someone asks for a dollar, give them two. If they ask you to walk a mile, walk several miles. Jesus, what are you talking about in an age in which you have zealots wanting to overthrow Rome and there's Roman imperialism everywhere that's dictating the culture of the day? And here Jesus is saying, when you deal with injustice in the kingdom, there's a different ethic. There's an ethic that transcends all of this. It's an ethic that gets into the heart in which you begin to live differently as a result of what Christ does. These are more than a punch list of religious one-liners, ladies and gentlemen. This is how a citizen thinks and lives. The basis of these Beatitudes in the words of Albert Barnes, is in all the languages, there is not a discourse to be found that can compare with it for purity, truth, beauty, and dignity. So what does this word blessed mean? There's two things. First, there's the character quality. It means that to be blessed, there's a beauty. It's not just a mere happiness. There's a, there's, there's a beauty that results from what, what, what God is doing in the life of an individual. It means to be fully satisfied. It means, in the classical sense, a bliss that cannot come from just simple moments of, of, of something that you experience that would say, man, I feel really happy in this moment, but really a, a joy that's even so much deeper. It literally translates sacred delight. It means that there are promises 
that are given when an individual walks with this kind of mindset. And the result of this is that there is something that is enriched in the life of an individual. It means favor. What does the word poor in spirit mean? The word poor means completely empty. It means when you come to that place where you're completely empty and at the end of yourself. Now let's look at the backdrop just real quickly. There were others who declared themselves to be poor in spirit, but they really weren't. There was the Pharisees. There was the scribes. I mean, there was the economically poor, but this was more than just economics. There was those who had false humility. It's, no, it's more than just a self-reliance or a boasting. This is when a person has literally come to the end of themselves and they surrender. And they say, God, this is what I'm going to give you. I'm going to fully surrender myself to you. Now, this is the first of all the Beatitudes that are going to follow. Why? Because in order to have this characteristic and quality, all the other Beatitudes build upon this first one. Realize that I'm not God. I gave you a translation that I worked out from the original, and it kind of goes like this. Sacred delight to those who realize that they are broken and cannot fix themselves and surrender to the power of God, for they shall walk into the kingdom of heaven. Wow. A little bit about my family. I grew up with four generations alcoholism on both sides of my family. I knew nothing of what it even meant to be sober in my family. Physical violence, abuse, all kinds of stuff. Matter of fact, we were, we were religious, but we knew nothing of a personal engagement with Jesus. In our house, we thought 151 was a scripture verse, and we abused it in every which way. In growing up in that kind of environment, and then coming to Jesus, I simply thought, man, once you come to Christ, and boy, you know, some of us can remember that first moment you, you had with Jesus and the passion in the heart. I was, it was an incredible moment, but not all the burdens of my heart rolled away. There was a journey that had to be walked out. And it was a journey that continues to this day. And what Jesus is saying in the Beatitudes, in this first Beatitude, you're not going to see this in your notes, but you want to write it down. You want to embrace a non-arrival theology, ladies and gentlemen. You know what it means? For us who are Western Christians, how many of us are so linear and we want everything to get done today? You know, we can accomplish this task. I can get over this thing. Here's the thing about our journey in Christ. Our journey in Christ is this side of heaven, I'm constantly being changed and I'll never arrive. And so I'm asked this question all the time. Hey, you know, being a person who used to drink a lot and everything, do you still work on your stuff? Yeah. Because you know what I found out? I found out you can come to church, you can be a card-carrying union Christian. You know what that means? I punch the time clock, I do my services, man, I'm, I'm good. I'm, I even serve on the usher team. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. So I'm good. I got sanctification because I'm working hard toward it. See, what I found out is I can't work hard towards anything. I have to surrender. So I still do stuff for me. I still 
have to be in the journey of surrendering and say, Jesus, there, there's, there's still things in me that are being transformed. Why? Because I want to play God, ladies and gentlemen. The core of all my issues is I want to be God for my life. And by the way, I'm not the only one. Here's another side note to that. You need to be deeply grateful that I'm not God. That would be a miserable experience for you. And I'm deeply grateful, by the way, you're not God. That would be a, a bad experience for me. The reason being is we don't play God really well. And in playing God, we want to have control of our lives. Let me give you the ways we, we play God. We try to control our image. We want to control what other people think of us. We want to know, we, we really don't want people to know who we are, so we wear masks, we play games, we deny our weaknesses, we deny our feelings. For some of us, we grew up in families that, you know, we just didn't deal well with conflict, so we just become passive-aggressive everywhere we go. And when people kind of go, are you okay? We just go, I'm doing just fine. Can't you tell how happy I am in Jesus? Thinking that we can, soup, we can just press all those things down. But ladies and gentlemen, we're just trying to play God. We try to control people. Parents try to control kids. Kids try to control parents. Wives try to control the husbands. Husbands try to control the wives. People try to control other people. Our whole country is filled with it. People trying to control someone. We try to control problems mainly our problems. We're not very good at this. We tell people, I can handle this. This is not a real big problem. We minimize things that take place, and we try to control our problems, and then we try to control our pain. How do we do that? Well, first, we avoid it, because pain is bad. So we do everything we can to numb our pain. For some of us, it might be some hidden addiction or something that we, we struggle with. For others, it could be we work too much. We, we, we just do something too much because we want to cover the pain and we don't want to deal with the pain. And here's the challenge. The challenge is pain's not our enemy. Pain's actually a gift. Because pain is the way that God communicates to us that something's broken. Something needs to be fixed. It gives us clarity even when it's uncomfortable to have clarity. This is the reason why sacred delight to those who surrender, who look into the face of Christ and who seek to follow his lead. This is literally what this, the writer is quoting Jesus as saying. I'm a scuba diver and I love diving and I had the opportunity one time when I was in Hawaii at a conference um, a buddy of mine says, Al, I got tickets. We're on a private boat. We're going to dive a Chinese freighter that sunk. It was about five years prior when one of the hurricanes had come through. The, the freighter had actually sunk. And it was in about, oh, 180 feet of water thereabouts um, offshore. And we're going to take this boat. And I was just so excited. I'm going, oh, this is going to be an awesome experience. So we're in the boat, and we're, the, 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 the captain's kind of talking to us how we're going to make the dive, where we're going to do our decompression points and all those things, because it was a deep dive. And we get to the place of the, the, the boat, and in Hawaii, because this was just right off of Oahu, um, there was an algae bloom. Now, if you've never been in an algae bloom, they can be where you can't even see through the water. It's like soup. So my partner is, is a little nervous 
And he's, he's, he's going out. You're going to be going down the safety line with me. I go, I'm going to be going down the safety line with you. And we go down the safety line, and literally, literally, we can't see each other unless if we get on the safety line and I can see his face. The algae bloom is so thick, it, it, we just can't see anything. We're about 30, I want to say 32 feet, thereabouts, down the rope, and he panics. And when I say panic, he punches me in the head, and then he begins to grab my regulator, and he's, he's, he's panicking. He's just, he's just way out of control because he can't see, and we're in deep water, and all you can see is this, this mush. And, 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 and I'm trying to look at him, and all I know what to do is I grab him, pull him towards the rope, hit him at the top of his forehead. Bam! He goes like this, and I can see his eyes are like, he's not even aware. And then he grabs my regulator again, and I hit him again, bam, right on the top of the head. And he does this. And then I do this, look me, which means as a sign, look me in the face. And we went back up the security line. He stayed on the boat. He was sick. He was embarrassed. I actually went with his son. Do you realize five more feet and we had unlimited visibility? Five more feet down the line, and it was unlimited visibility. I even got to, to dive with a, a white-tipped shark. That was unbelievable, <laughs> I think. <laughs> I kept on doing this. I sure hope there's no A1 sauce on me. <laughs> this thing popped out of nowhere, and quite honestly, there was a moment there. I said, what did I just do to myself? But it was a wonderful dive. It was absolutely amazing, but five more feet. Ladies and gentlemen, what Jesus is saying is this. When you stop playing God and you use all your coping mechanisms, because at the end of the day, our adversary has more strategies to usurp the journey that we're on than we have coping mechanisms. And so what happens is we, we use all these different kinds of coping, coping mechanisms, and then we still have to deal with the consequences, but we're this close to the breakthrough when we surrender to what God has for us. What are some of the consequences of playing God? Fear. When I try to control everything, I get afraid. Look at Adam. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. We pretend that things don't exist. And then, and, and then there's frustration. Do you know one of the games I, I, I love when my kids, I have five sons, by the way. Yeah, it's a, it was an amazing experience, you know. And uh, they're great kids, but boy, five. We were outnumbered. And we used to take them to Chuck E. Cheese. My favorite game was the whack-a-mole. Do you know what the whack-a-mole is? When the little groundhog comes up with its head and you get to whack it, man, I love that game. I said, boys, come on over here. Bam! You could just whack the whack, you know, and the thing pops up. Of course, my wife would go, you're having too much fun there. Can you guys kind of calm it down? No, we're going to whack this thing. Bam! You know, and you hit the swing with that hammer. That's how we try to live our lives. We get so frustrated that we go from crisis to crisis, we try to beat this down, beat that down, because we think we can control all outcomes, and the truth of the matter is we can't. Paul realized this in Romans 7, 21 through 23. He says, it seems the fact of life, when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do is wrong. Something else is deep within me. That war within my mind wins the fight and makes me a slave to sin. There's fatigue. David saw it in Psalm 32, and he says, my strength evaporated like water on a sunny day. 
until I finally admitted all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide them. Man, it's fatiguing. It can be so fatiguing. Failure. When you try to play God, that's the one job description you're, going to, you're, you're, you're just not going to succeed at. Proverbs 28, 13. You'll never succeed in life if you try to hide your sins. Confess them. Give them up. But here's the thing. We're a safe place. I know your pastor. And through your pastor, I know a lot of the works. So this is a safe place. And being a safe place, what does that mean? Well, let me tell you what it means to Jesus. He loves you right where you're at. But here's the, the joke. He doesn't expect you to stay that way. What do you mean? I can't stay that Yeah. Because grace, catch this, is the freedom to fail forward. It's the freedom to confess. It's the freedom. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who no longer control, who no longer play God. Why? Because they will walk or they will be in partnership with God's mission and purpose in life. That's the power of the gospel. And what's the cure? Admit I can't fix myself. Admit it. Admitting to God means three things. I admit that I'm powerless to change my past. How many of you have ever gone down to uh, Disneyland? I remember taking our boys. We've driven Highway 5 so many times. You know, such a beautiful drive, isn't it? And uh, (laughs) that's why we drive it, you know? We just go, honey, let's just take Highway 5. It's such a wonderful, wonderful drive. And, you know, the one stop-off, because I'm the kind of person, I grew up in a family, let's get to the place. You know, you go to Disneyland, and the one stop-off point is what? You don't have anyone ever going, I can't wait to get to Kettleman City. (laughs) Matter of fact, you smell Kettleman City before you even get there. It's just a horrid smell, especially this time of year when it's summer and all the cattle's out there. And, you you know what I never could understand? How does anyone eat food in Kettleman City? with that smell. You know, all you kind of go, well, that's a wonderful burger. No, it isn't. How do you taste it? On top of that, you got all those cows staring at you. Look what you just did to my relatives. <laughs> I just thought about that. That was really funny. But anyways, <laughs> that are really paranoid. But the, the thing is, no one ever says, man, I want to stop and stay in Kettleman City. But let's be, let's be honest here. If you don't stop sometimes in Kettleman City, you don't get gas. It's a stop-off point. You don't want to live there, but you got to stop there. Can I tell you on your journey? On your journey, when we're talking about admitting that you can't change your past, when you come to Jesus, that's, that's his deal. That's his deal. I can't get stuck there. But for some of us, we kind of get stuck there, and it becomes our Kettleman City. And every time we try to move, all we could do is smell that Kettleman City. When Jesus is saying, I don't want you to pitch your tent there, that's not what I have for you. Get back on the journey. Because I have something that's a whole lot different than a Kettleman City. Secondly, I admit that I'm powerless to control other people. I just don't have the ability to control other people. I can't manipulate them, I can't use gimmicks, I can't, I'm I'm not responsible for their actions, I can only be responsible for me. 
And then thirdly, I admit that I'm powerless to cope with all the habits and the behaviors that want to overtake me. And you might be going, wow. When it's all said, what, what does that really mean? Well, if you want to take an Old Testament kind of paradigm or a story that really illustrates this, real freedom is to admit that you walk with a limp, and there's a guy by the name of Mephibosheth. Say that three times, and if you could say that, you can get away with it. It's pretty good. But Mephibosheth, who was he? Let me kind of tell you who Mephibosheth is. Mephibosheth is this guy who's Saul's son. The Bible says at birth he was dropped by the, by the, the handmaiden, and it, it, it handicapped him for life. He was ostracized and minimized because with a, in, a, in a culture that you had to be a military man. You had to be physically strong. He was frail, and he had this handicap. And Jonathan and, and, and David became good friends, and one day Jonathan says, hey, you know, David, you're the man, and I'm going to die with my father. And I ask just one request, take care of my family, especially Mephibosheth, because it was the Middle Eastern tradition that the whole family had to be wiped out. And when news had gotten back that Saul and Jonathan was killed, David dispatched his generals to go get a hold of Mephibosheth. And right when they kind of came up, Mephibosheth threw himself in front of him and said, listen, hey, I'm at your mercy. If you want to take my life, you could take my life. And here's the thing. The general said, Mephibosheth, get off the ground. We're not here to take your life. David wants you to go back to the palace. And one of the most powerful illustrations of what it means to be humble and poor in spirit and to surrender is Mephibosheth goes to David and he's fully expecting that David's going to take his life because Saul wanted to kill David and was such an adversary. And David said, no, your, 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 your father was like a brother to me and I made a commitment. Mephibosheth, I'm going to make a promise to you. You are going to sit at my table. My grandfather came to Christ at age 60. His life was completely transformed. I saw a man that was angry and filled with so much stuff come to Jesus and begin to go on the mission field and, and do so many things with, for God. And then later in life, he, he came with, uh, down with Alzheimer's. And I can remember being a caregiver for him. And on one occasion... Because he would never remember who I was. He would always say, kind sir, thank you for taking care of me. And he was deteriorating to the point that he couldn't no longer even get out of his bed. And I was there one night, and, and I was shaving his face. And I can remember just sitting there going, God, I love this man so much. I would just like to have a moment, because I was in the middle of, of just making some big decisions with my life, and i just like my grandfather to recognize me. Just one time. And I'm shaving his face. And all of a sudden, he gets a big smile. And he puts his hands on my face. And he goes, Albert. Albert. And he just smiles. And then a few minutes later, he goes back into the fog. But on that day, I knew God had answered my prayer. And the decision I was making was already answered. All I needed to do was look at the face of my grandfather. 
to know that that man loves me. You know, we have all kinds of religious illusions about God and who he is, and sometimes we get really weird about it. Can I just tell you the simplicity of this? <coughs> simplicity is this. With all of our brokenness, to be blessed as the poor in spirit means this simplicity. When I surrender, and I'm consciously aware that, God, you're right there, and you're looking at me, and your pleasure's all over me. And in those moments that I just go, God, you're there. And even though I walk with a limp, you invite me to sit at your table. It's at those moments that I recognize grace. That I recognize I may not have the capacity to be the husband I need to be, the father I need to be, the man that I need to be. But Jesus, you're at work in me. And we're not done yet. We're not done yet. I know that Josh, our worship pastor, is going to be coming, and I just want to finish with this final story, the story of a man that really has impacted my life just by virtue of history, William Borden. You might go, who is William Borden? And William Borden... In the early part of the century, he ended up going to university. He was part of the William Borden family fame, the dairy farmers, who were also in shipping. He ends up going to university, and his dad says, I want you to take my business. I want you to take the family business. I want you to, to basically run and do everything that, that, that I've done, son. And he said, Dad, I don't feel that. Jesus has called me to another, a whole other occupation. And he ends up going to Yale. And this freshman student had such a passion for Christ that many of the other students already saw that there was a difference. And he would always tell the other students, they would always say, how do you have such a passion for Christ? And William Borden would look at him and say, I surrendered. I surrendered. And at Yale University on Friday nights when students were out, partying and doing all their stuff that university students would do in that day. William Borden would take his wealth and he would go throughout the towns and feed the poor and take the people who were drunk and passed out and care for them. And people would watch how he lived. It got to the point that 1,300 students from Yale University every Friday and Saturday night were on the streets with him. They went to William Borden his sophomore year and said, we want to know more of how we can live like you. And he says, well, you just got to live like Jesus. By the way, one of the first verses he taught them was the first beatitude. And it was there that they landed, that 1,300 students, five days a week before class, were meeting for Bible study. It came to the day of his graduation. And the day of his graduation, he was given so many academic accolades and awards. And uh, his father came up to him and said, son... Please consider taking the family business. But you see, early on before he went to college, he traveled all over the world. And, and, and his heart be, became really touched by a group of people in China who are Muslims, the Muslims of their day, who literally were killing Christians in that day. And, 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 but, but no one would want to go there and serve them. But God tugged his heart and he says, I'm going there. His friends and his father said, but you'll die. And he says, I'm surrendered. And that day in his Bible, he put this. He put that there would be 
no regrets. No regrets. He wasn't going to go back. Then he goes on his way to China and he gets to Egypt to do his language training. While he's there, he becomes sick with meningitis. His friends, some of his friends go to see him. They're by their bedside. They said, you need to go back to the States. He told his friends, I'm surrendered. I'm surrendered. I got, I got to finish the course. William Borden wrote this in his Bible on this day. No retreat. No retreat. 30 days later, he died. Never made it to China. His life so impacted because he was surrendered. Not a perfect man. He never admitted that. He always just said, I'm surrendered. That it made global headlines about his death. Thousands of college students were so moved that they signed up to universities so that they could be trained for missions. That group that he went to, hundreds of students ended up going and ministering to that tribe and began to serve. And in his Bible, the last thing that he wrote before he died was this. He said, no regrets again. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. When we find our freedom in Christ, and this is my final point, we're going to pray, but I want you to hear this. There's some of you who are moms, dads, grandpas, grandmas, aunts and uncles, men and women, and somebody may not know what's going on in your heart and what your struggle is, but when you surrender to Christ and you say, I'm not going to live on my reserves. I'm not going to live by any kind of regrets. I'm going to obey him fully. And I'm not going to retreat. Know this, that your freedom today liberates generations to come. It liberates generations to come. The decisions we make to be poor in spirit and to say, God, I'm not going to play God, frees possibly grandkids that haven't even been born into a new future because of what Jesus said. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm so deeply grateful for all that you're up to, and I ask that your Holy Spirit through the rest of this service would just work on hearts. Lord, that you would just continue to do that work that only you can do. Lord, that you would continue to be with Pastor Josh as he would lead us, and that in our community there would be a sweetness of your presence. I pray that maybe for some of us for the first time we would come to the place of admitting something is broken in us and that we need you to change and we need to surrender so that that change can take effect. We just pray this in your name. Amen. Let's stand up. Thank you, Alfred.